November is the month that goes to 11. And to quote that metal mockumentary Spinal Tap, I sometimes think of DevOps like the Druids. No one knows who they were or what they were doing. Which means this week we speak with Tim Mackey from Synopsys about using the data from our security tools to drive better security decisions. In the news segment, attackers bend a mobile iron flaw out of shape. An Xbox cookie hits identities with a mass effect. Amazon polishes software to find rust. KubeCon adds some security rhythm to DevOps, a reading list in the major key of DevOps, and more. Find a new drummer and stay tuned for Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. It's the show to learn the latest tools, techniques, and processes necessary to understand DevOps, application security, and cloud security. Your trusted source for the latest application security news. It's time for Application Security Weekly. By connecting to your code repository, Acturex generates a topology across your full stack to reveal risks so that you can harden your architecture. It also scans code for violations against compliance and security standards to enforce best practices. In addition, Actrix develops threat models using vulnerability feeds, IAM privileges, and other data to predict potential breach paths. Learn how easy it is to get started with Acturix at securityweekly.com forward slash Acturix. In a fast-paced tech environment, the potential attack surface increases with each release and new app created. Detectify automates cutting-edge knowledge from trusted ethical hackers into the development pipeline for reliable application security. Go beyond the OWASP Top 10. Check your web apps for over 2,000 known vulnerabilities actively exploited in the wild. Monitor subdomains for potential takeovers and remediate security issues in staging and production. Learn more with a free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash Detectify. Go hack yourself. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies. Protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week, Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash signal sciences. Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 132, recorded November 30th, 2020. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and we have the band back together because I'm here with Matt Alderman. Hello, Matt. Buenos dias, mis amigos. Volvi. Means I'm back. Well, <laughs> he's back. He's back in 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 and in in shape to have some chat with us. And we also have John Kinsella. Hello, John. Hey, I uh, um, I'm I'm still where I was. I can't say any of that fancy French stuff that guy was talking about. Living up true to the commentary we always get from John, which is why you're here. Thank you. <laughs> Security Weekly, in partnership with Cyber, uh, Cyber Risk Alliance, is excited to present Security Weekly Unlocked on December 10th, 2020. This one-day virtual event wraps up with the 15th anniversary edition of Paul's Security Weekly live on YouTube. Visit securityweekly.com unlocked to view the agenda and register for free. I'll also be asking a panel about API security. So um, come hang out if you like ASW and want to hear about API security as well. It'll be a blast. 
Tim Mackey is a principal security strategist for the Synopsys Cybersecurity Research Center. As a security strategist, he applies his skills in distributed systems engineering, mission-critical engineering, performance monitoring, large-scale data operations, global and global data privacy regulations to customer problems. An O'Reilly Media-published author, Tim has also been covered in publications around the globe, including Fortune, NBC News, Dark Reading, InfoSecurity Magazine, and The Straits Times. Hello, Tim. Thank you for joining us again. That's one hell of a bio to read. Uh, that is the, one of the most uh, s- alliterative syllables, scylla, something, lots of S's. That's it it fits exactly for. the word count in something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your RSA submission, maybe. Exactly. <laughs> you got to rise to the top, and the more names you can drop, the better. Exactly, and true to RSA form, at the end of your uh, at the end of this segment, we're going to require you to have an apply um, slide. So keep that in mind um, <laughs> as we're talking. <laughs> but but speaking of applying, one of the things that I did allude to in the uh, other intro that was a bit shorter on word count was the idea that we we do have all of these security tools, and we've talked with you before about security tools. But one of the things, but one of the things is trying to tease out what's the real difference between having a bunch of security tools and actually using the data from them for you know important things that actually help the business or should be moving the business forward, like making decisions. So I'm wondering what brought your mind around to this idea or highlighting this problem of how should we better be using the data from these tools rather than just focusing on the tools themselves. So yeah, the, one of the big problems that everybody has with the, the security tooling that they have is there's a long list of findings. You might have hundreds, thousands even, individual findings from a specific tool looking at a specific aspect of an application throughout its lifecycle, whether it's on the development side or the deployment side. And those tools all operate in their little silo. But wouldn't it be a whole lot more effective if the tools could actually talk to each other and talk to each other in a way that allows for contextual information to flow throughout the life cycle? And kind of the way that I look at it is if you have, for example, a set of findings that are coming out of a static analysis tool, say like a Coverity, and those findings list all of the various weaknesses that the application has, you now take that application, you package it up, you're getting ready to deploy it in production. The production team can then have a different perspective on what the the various weaknesses are, effectively enabling them to better understand what the threat aspects of that application would be. And one way to do that is through something like an interactive application security test tool. So you put that uh, in place, you run the agent, it binds to the application, and now you run your sequence of tests through and you see your results. And if you can now confirm what the uh, dev team said was the state of the world from static analysis, you now have a better understanding of what the actual risks of deploying that application in a production environment look like. Because now you've got confirmation evidence, you've got more context around what that deployment environment is doing to the actual application, what you might, for example, have as a result of having a WAF in front of something or uh, having a, a service mesh in place for containerized application, that kind of thing. Yeah. I was, I was going to say, I mean, one of the big interesting challenges 
is when I build code, right, and static analysis runs, does that code ever get called? Does it get invoked? And, and what you just said was interesting, right, is, okay, I've got my static analysis completed. I'm going to run that through and, and provide that information over to Interactive. Now I can actually know whether that piece of code actually runs because I can actually test it. It's part of the testing process, right, to know, oh, yeah, that piece of code does run. There are some issues there. Maybe we need to fix it before we release it or we need to, you know, put a – another configuration or another component in front of it to protect it. But understanding between source code and the interactive dynamic side of the house is a really interesting uh, use case and I think a big challenge for a lot of organizations. And I would add to that that no tel- no individual tool is going to see the whole picture. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I kind of liken it to if you had the darkened room and you had the proverbial lion or elephant in there, we each have our own magnifying glasses and, and lights on things, but we're not actually seeing the whole of what's there. So for example, the test suites that might be used on the interactive side of the equation, they're not necessarily going to tease out the exception handlers that might be there, yet there still could be weaknesses on the exception handler side of the equation that a static analysis tool is going to find. So why not have the security results of each stage of the the release pipeline add their own metadata and either that's confirmation of a prior stage's findings or that's a situation where there's a deviation, you can start to actually ask questions and have people have a, a greater understanding of what it means to operate this hunk of code that's been created. But doesn't, so as the complexity increases, you have more tools. Either one or more humans has to be trained to understand those different tools, or you have to have something that's able to sort of take all that mumbo jumbo and, and bring it into language those guys understand. Um, so how, how, what's your thoughts about that? So you kind of have to be able to, to a certain extent, eat that elephant. And one of the ways yeah. that you can do that is by actually going and seeing what each of the tools are having as their set of findings. So being able to correlate some of that information, but also start to express it in terms of a set of taxonomies. So for example, if you take the OWASP top 10 or the SANS 25, pick your poison as you will there are going to be various classes of issues that you're going to want to identify. And those can either be mitigated or remediated. And now you can start to say, I have a class of issues. And from a security perspective, I cannot meet compliance or cannot meet policy if I have this particular uh, weakness in my code. So what do I need to do to actually uh, enable that code to meet policy today. Now, there might be a, say, a Thanksgiving rush where something needs to be deployed right now because of the fact that it's Thanksgiving. That might be an exception, but you can start to have the conversations once you break down the taxonomy around how I might go and construct my future sprints. What is the state of the world now? How well are we doing in managing application X and being able to own and operate it? A lot of that, what you're describing too, it sounds like you've been using the, the the terms, the pronouns, you know, you need to be doing this, you should be doing this. I'd like to explore that a bit to figure out who is you in, in this particular uh, narrative. Uh, because, and what you were kind of describing there, it sounded like, um, you know, planning sprints, seeing the benefits of sprints. Who, who, with that idea, it sounds like you're really focusing here on devs as opposed, or maybe the business as opposed to security. Does Does that sound right? 
So to a certain extent, yes, but I'm really trying to focus in on the information flow. So I kind of liken it to if I'm the developer, if my job is to write code and grind out code, then I have a set of expectations around context. I'm going to be working on this feature. I'm going to be thinking about all of the issues that are associated with this feature, but I have a colleague and my colleague is working on their set of features and whatever the ticket assignments are, the ticket assignments are, and it's ultimately that code is going to be combined in some form of CI and there's testing that's going to be run on it. And eventually that code gets uh, deployed. And so ignoring the which side of CD you're on, the code that is going to be deployed has to have been tested to some degree. How do I actually communicate that test results, not in terms of findings, but in terms of risk to the people who are ultimately going to own the the thing? Uh, And the scenario that I look at is if someone gets attacked at 2 a.m., the developer isn't the one holding the pager. The operations Mm -hmm. team are. So if the operations team doesn't have all of the information around what kind of security testing that they were seeing, they're going to start guessing at ways to mitigate this. And so there's differences in how the pain is felt. And for me, part of having a security information flow where you can actually have testing that is creating findings and having the findings confirmed at a later stage is trying to enable all of the people who are involved in that overall life uh, life cycle to know what the pain of operating the code actually is so that collectively they can start to do a better job of reducing the business pain as a re, uh, that results from let's call them slightly less than ideal implementations yeah, so it's very much, it sounds like, a feed-forward loop um, to pass on as it gets closer to deployment as much as there should be a feedback loop, as we talked about before, about DevOps. So I'm curious, too, you, you also talked about, like, it sounds like there's a lot of communication here as well. Communication both on what are the vulns that are found or the what are the less-than-ideal states of software, I think, as you sort of put it, and how should the team next in line handle that or mitigate that? So again, it sounds like you're talking about risk transfer or pushing that, um, we can either call it a burden or um, the capability onto the DevOps teams throughout rather than just the security team owning that. Correct. And so uh, teams might be structured in a way that there's a hierarchy of security people who are going to have their ideas coming down on top of them, or there might be embedded security people within the the overall DevOps team who uh, may report to, say, the product owner, and overall they determine what the correct set of uh, sprint construction and uh, deployment paradigms might be. But at the end of the day, there's a a set of information inputs that are going to come also from the business that need to be factored in. So CCPA, GDPR, perfect examples. Um, Someone coming up with a new way of having, say, a contact tracing app that needs to meet HIPAA requirements. How do those pieces of regulatory information end up in the hands of a development team or an operations team? Because traditionally, DevOps has been very here's dev, here's ops, and we have our lovely little Mobius, and we throw a little security shield in the middle, and now we have a representation. But the feature function business uh, operation requirements aren't part of that Mobius. And that's one piece of information that needs to be coming in because it is effectively an external threat. 
do you meet the policy requirements that are going to be necessary to say achieve your SOC 2? Right. Or are you exposing private yeah, data that now falls under GDPR or CCPA requirements that now causes fines or something for the business, right? I mean, th there's a lot of scenarios like that. Exactly. So just imagine if you were designing new software today, and one of the things that you have as a requirement is GDPR, uh, CCPA, and all of the uh, data privacy legislation that's come around globally. If you can now attach a set of security tests that were performed against a, uh, a, a data element that qualifies for CCPA, GDPR treatment, now you can start to build a workflow that has that metadata moving throughout. And when the time comes to actually operate that code, someone can go and say, so what were the set of tests that were performed to ensure that we are reasonably compliant with the expectations of these new legislations? Oh, wait, there's another one coming in two months. Are we still compliant with that? And have those kinds of discussions. And that's really the key element is that we have all of these tools and they're giving us data but unless we start asking the right questions, we're not necessarily going to be in a position where the situation improves. So does that mean we get an application governance platform to pull all this data together? Because, look, I, I came out of the governance versus management compliance side. I spent a good amount of time on that side of the house. We try to do this for other types of areas of our, of our regulatory policies. Does this extract itself into more of an application governance platform then, Tim? Not necessarily. And I'm not a great fan of having yet another platform because they tend to not necessarily move at the speed of innovation. The real key is on the information flow side of the equation. So any team today can adopt these types of principles by just being in a position to start asking questions. If we go back to the genesis of DevOps, it was all about being in a position where as an organization, everyone felt comfortable enough to raise their hand and say, wait, I think I see a problem here. The same set of uh, cultural paradigms within dev teams and within ops teams needs to be applied to data privacy, information flow, and being able to correlate the information from multiple tools. Because ultimately, from my perspective, if you have this platform, the next challenge is how do you actually have tool independence? Um, the platform's obviously going to have a preference uh, to a certain set of tools because of who authored it. So if you're in a position where you can start to look at the data side of the equation, you're now in a position to start looking at the, the right types of tools, be it an interactive application tool like we have from Synopsys, or be it an interactive application security tool that we have from any number of other vendors. The paradigm is the same. It's just the data interchange would need to be a little bit different because each has its own set of APIs. Right, yeah. And we've seen aspects of this in like the vulnerability management space. I think there's similar tools trying to do aspects of this in the application vulnerability space, but it's a little broader than that also because it's not just about necessarily the vulnerability. I mean, maybe it is, but when I think about the application side of the equation, you've got a lot of different factors that come in here, key management, password, user accounts, uh, vulnerability configuration. configuration. There's a lot of components that have to be addressed versus just like what, what some of the threat vulnerability management vendors are doing, for example. Exactly. And so every organization is going to have its preference for what types of threat intelligence feeds are going to come in. And 
if you have the ability to take that as a data source and maybe have multiple vendors from the thread Intel side, that needs to also be fed back in because there's no possible way that a single developer is going to be in a position to know how to solve the world's problems. And that's really one of the big challenges that I see on a continuing basis with the whole shift left philosophy that organizations have in their adoption of DevOps, that somewhere there's a mythical, magical developer who is going to solve every single security issue that there is out there. They just, that's not the way the world works, but it's an easy thing to fall into when you're seeing shift left, shift left. Oh, well, this is the developer is going to solve all the all the problems. They don't feel the same kind of pain that the operations team uh, feels. They don't feel the same kind of pain that the GRC folks feel. And part of the information flow is having a way that you can actually start to express what that pain is so that together everyone's having a happier day as opposed to someone having a really bad day. So. Good lead in for me, thank you. Um, what I was about to ask you was, um, you know, back, you know, five, 10 minutes ago, you were talking about uh, the, that handoff between dev and ops. And, and my way of solving that frequently has been to give the developer a pager and put, make, put him on call and make him part of rotation. Um, suddenly a lot of your operational problems start becoming a lot smoother, like, you know, log quality and, you know, how do you actually figure out what's going on in the system? But what I was gonna ask you, that what you just made me think about is, um, What's the equivalent of that on the GRC side? Is is can you dream one up, right? You know, it's it's one thing. I don't know. Do you make them start looking at control panels or sorry, dashboards or is there some sort of? I know, and, and part of what's going on here, you know, what you just addressed is very accurate. It's it's the shift left in in our the bubble we hang out in. It's a bubble. Um, there's a lot of companies which I think are doing it, but I think also a lot of the larger companies which you in, engage with. Um, yeah, production is could be in a separate floor or a separate building. They don't see the dev guys. Separate country. But, yeah, but curious if you have any thoughts around, you know, what's the equivalent of um, giving a pager on the GRC side of things? Either you or Matt. So from my perspective, and I'm actually curious as to what, what Matt's seen, from my perspective, one of the first things is that the dev and ops teams, the team members, they need to actually make friends with their legal teams. I've gotten up on stage multiple times and said, go find who is your attorney, who are who's on your legal team, go get them lunch, hang out with them. Mm -hmm. They're reasonably normal people, much in the same way that we're reasonably normal people. And when an incident happens, and it really is more of a case of a when than an if, you want them to be in a position where they kind of know that you're trying to do the right thing and you're not just an arbitrary name on a piece of paper or in an email. And they have to start with, well, what does this person know? Is this person really on the good side of the, the business or a little bit more of a Wild West person? And so that, that making friends starts to ease some of the friction. And it really is more of a question of how uh, much friction is associated with owning the application. So handing the page over to the dev team, suddenly they want to remove the friction of operating code. So uh, I, I'm really curious as to what Matt has to say on this one. I, I think GRC teams have enough struggle trying to figure out the basics. I don't even think they have any clue what's going on on the DevOps and application side of the house. But they're the same teams but that are going to be the, the ones that end up feeling be. the pain in an in an IR situation. They they could be. They may not be though. It depends on the organization, right? More mature organizations. You're absolutely right. In other areas, there's still some isolation there uh, in in some of these organizations. So I'm not quite sure that they do. Um, so it, 
I think it varies depending on on who you are, how mature your programs are. I think it's just a big challenge in general is this shift, right, to this environment where I develop applications very quickly, deploy them very frequently in new infrastructure environments is not what traditional GRC folks have focused on in the past, right? They still think about data centers. They still think about slower moving things. Compliance to them is like an annual activity. It's mm-hmm. not a weekly thing. And, and when you think about governance and risk in a very fast moving, agile, CICD kind of DevOps mode, the frequency, I don't think they're ready for it. I, I, I don't think they're really wrapping their heads around doing these kind of evaluations and understanding whether compliance and risk impacts are changing that frequently. Like I said, super mature organizations have been doing this a while. The financials, the capital ones of the world, I think they do have a better handle on this. I'm not sure other organizations actually do. And from my perspective, that's where some of the information flow really starts to become important. And if they start to ask questions around, so what does it actually mean to have a weekly release cycle, a daily release cycle. What does it mean to have uh, to be able to arbitrarily roll back at the snap of your fingers by simply uh, going and having a an A/B test in Kubernetes for that application? Um, those are things that, um, in the long run, will actually enable better security outcomes from my perspective. Yeah, I think that that's data sharing that you've been um, advocating here, Tim. I think that can really speak to a GRC team in the sense, as well as that uh, that other theme of communication you're highlighting, in the sense that you're describing developers, you know, feeding forward or passing on to an ops team some less than uh, perfect software, but also, but at, at a point where. They're saying we're going to accept this risk or we understand what the risk here to to a degree and we're going to put some controls in place. And that type of thinking, I think, ties in quite well to GRC. It just may be that the pace of it, of course, is here is much faster and GRC perhaps needs their own tool to be able to tap into this information flow, if you will, to be able to generate that mapping that says, ah, we have this regulatory need, this compliance, uh, as we understand it. And here is how, throughout the, the pipeline, different teams are addressing that. Or perhaps even, here's where some gaps are internally that we know that we need to go fix. So those are the two things that highlight to me is that you're really, you, you're not describing we're creating perfect software. It sounds like you're describing a great way to say, what's the baseline either we need or we want? And a need perhaps comes from compliance or regulatory and want comes from our own operations, our security team, for example. Yeah, and, and if you look at how product development, well, product management effectively tends to look at how they're going to evolve software, the product owner is going to come back and say, well, I have these users who want these things. Well, the GRC team is another user. But the visibility that they need is probably more akin to an API extract that goes up into some Tableau dashboard or some Power BI uh, dashboard so that they can just keep monitoring that the things are moving in the right direction for the business and that when there's a deviation, they can at least have a seat at the table that says, well, what was the cause of this deviation? Was it something that we did that was good and we see a dip and that's dip means good? Or is it a case of we saw a spike and spike means good? 
having that level of, uh, of information available to everyone so that they understand and have effectively a common language within the organization to express what success means, that that's one of the keys. I'm only slightly disappointed that you didn't mention spreadsheets as the important tool for tracking all of this. <laughs> well, but you know, for MBA people, they do teach that if it can't be done in Excel, then it's not worth doing. But no, there's more to it. <laughs> there's more to it. But I think there is quite more to it because all this too, you're talking about data sharing, but throughout none of this, and I don't even think we're going this direction, is that you haven't defined that we need a standard. We need yet another type of XML expression or JSON blob or something like that to describe this nomenclature and taxonomy of data to share. It sounds like we just need to tie, we need to have tools with APIs that developers or even security developers can use to tie this information together, even perhaps to dump it into a spreadsheet for that matter. And if spreadsheet is the right way to communicate, then awesome. Uh, but it ends up being a case of uh, another standard someplace. That's not uh, that might help in time, but for right now, the most important thing is being able to have the confidence to ask the questions, to raise your hand and say, "So, is this actually going to make things better?" And have a definition for the organization as to what better means. And then start being more down the continuous improvement path as opposed to trying to attain perfection because the security perfection paradigm, that may have been perfectly appropriate back when we, are, we were all waterfall, but now it should be more of a continuous improvement. What can I do to start chipping away at these findings? If I now know that I have say 200 findings from my static analysis tool, is that an acceptable number? Does that just represent the state of the union and I don't want to have any more uh, than 200 findings out there? Or am I willing to tolerate some additional findings in certain classes of weaknesses? It's a discussion point for the teams to have and take ownership of. Yeah, and I think we've always, one, one of my go-to questions is, you know, what's the value of doing this or why should I bother? And I think you've made a good case for this, especially on, we've talked about some of the compliance regulatory angle, but I'm curious too, uh, you know, talking about, this sounds like it could be a lot of work on the devs to tie the data together, to improve the communication, which sounds like a value there as well, just improving communication. But what are some other ways that you would bring this as in identified values to business? to the business to, that wants to you know, invest in this, make the decision to adopt this type of approach? So one of the things that I always fall back on is that development teams can get really bogged down on the, how am I fixing these security issues? I see security as a negative. It's slowing me down. It's getting in my way. It's something that I don't want to do. And I've heard that many, many, many times from many organizations throughout my career. By being able to have uh, effectively a developer seat at the table that says, well, this is what your security discussion is, is creating for me from work, but also here's how we're addressing it. You're now gaining a level of engagement within the development team for what secure coding should really look like for that organization which in turn is ultimately going to create a greater level of engagement and sense of ownership for the application and its well-being, not just on the, hey, I operate this thing, isn't that cool and wonderful, but I built this feature, I built these things. Uh, and potentially allowing uh, the development team to get up in front of their peers and be able to say, hey, look, we did such a good job that so long as you don't hit save, update, or delete on something you don't understand, you can't really break it. 
that's a sense of empowerment that creates a sense of ownership that just bolsters the dev team's uh, view of the organization as a really cool place to be. And, and I'm not sure this puts potentially a lot more work on the developers. If I've got some automation in there and I can express the data and have it available, does it really put that much more burden on the development staff? Because if I've automated aspects of some of these security checks along the way, and some of this data is now expressed as part of that resultant uh, tool set, I don't know that it puts a lot more overhead on, but the data is available for others to use it and be able to leverage it in other steps of the process. So I, I just, I was curious, Mike, why you said, you know, maybe maybe it's not more work for the developers, right? Which makes it even yeah. a little easier to embrace. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that comes back to, we haven't, you know, we've a little bit touched on tools, but here I think it's more of, are we asking the, are we asking the dev team to run and run these tools? Or are we asking them to say, call this API that this, that this uh, tool already has that hooks in quite easily into whatever uh, point of the, the deployment uh, pipeline you need. And at that point, it just becomes no different than adding a Slack announcement that the deploy went out or that a uh, pull request need, needs a merge. So I think you make a great point there is that the focus here is, is the tool helping us because it has an AI, a API, um, AIs can come later as they dominate us all, um, or is the tool working against us just because security thought this was something we needed to have and they didn't actually bother with that idea of the very point that Tim started us off with, that it can share the information quite easily. And I would throw one other aspect in there as well. From a development perspective, if the tooling can now provide me with additional contextual information for what quantifies or what qualifies successful deployment or successful acceptance of the code, I'm now in a position where if I have uh, a, a lightweight version of some tool in my IDE, I can now know that this particular implementation decision that I'm making isn't one that is going to be able to pass policy. So I'm actually creating more work for myself if I keep going down this particular path because I now have that greater awareness of what where the pain points are and what's going to quant, uh, constitute a successful deployment of this specific release or of the results of this specific sprint. No, absolutely. I think if there's one other theme that I've heard um, so far, it's that getting rid of the pain and removing the pain is, is one of the great themes here. So I'm curious, Tim, as we, we start to wrap up the, the segment, is there a particular pain that you would, you know, that you would like to try and remove, either saying that tools could do a better job of or what would be a good first step for DevOps teams and security teams to, to, stay, to take as they mature this type of capability? So I think one of the biggest pain point that teams have always experienced in my in my career is the the pain of sifting through uh, an excess of findings effectively looking for that uh, security gem in the sea of false positives uh, i've had that scenario myself many times where i just get the the binder of findings and somewhere in the 263 pages is in fact the one thing that i need to find but unless i'm reading war and peace i'm not going to find it by being able to correlate the output of all of the tools together and see what's happening you're now actually taking the strengths of individual tools 
to compensate for the weaknesses that a, uh, a, a, a that you might find if you're not looking at how the data is actually related to each other. So the, the findings that you might get out of static analysis, if you're able to go and confirm those with interactive, awesome. The findings that you get out of uh, a software composition analysis tool, if you can now get down to is this code reachable and is this code actually exposed in a way that could be exploited, those become interesting scenarios as well. And so if you're able to remove the false positives, that's awesome. If you can actually do it in a way that doesn't actually impact pipelines, that's even better. And that's one of the big reasons why I like the uh, the, the interactive analysis tools like the Seeker solution that we have from Synopsys because it can actually be embedded under the covers in a way that allows for all of the normal testing, all of the normal pre-deployment, uh, UAT, pre-prod staging, whatever you want to call it, environments, uh, test output to be run against something that's been instrumented. And now you're in a position to say, well, what was code coverage? What was exposed? What was the risk associated with this? Does this meet our bar? I love that. Give us the context to make all this information even more valuable and actionable that says, this is what we really care about amongst this sea of vulns. So we really care about um, the the message you've, you've brought us here, Tim. So I want to thank you once again for joining us. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Always happy to have you. We'll have to have you back as well. I'd also like to thank my reasonably normal colleagues, uh, Matt and John, for joining us and all of you listening. If you'd like to learn more about Synopsys, visit securityweekly.com synopsis. And now we're going to take a quick break and return with news of the week. <laughs> 